So as we come to Esther chapter 5, we were here a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, and just a refresher on the book of Esther that, you know, it's around 480 B.C., the Israelis, the Jews went into captivity, uh, 586 B.C., the final captivity under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians were overthrown by the Medo-Persians. During that time, uh, Ezra brought back a first wave of captives. That's in the book of Ezra, 70 years after that, so in the early 510, 20 range there of B.C. And then about 30, 40 years go by, and we get Esther. So Esther arose in the time between Ezra and Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is a little bit after Esther in the timeline chronologically. And so Esther's there in the Medo-Persian Empire, modern Iran, and we know that Queen Vashti was the original queen of Artaxerxes, but, um, you know, she had the falling out, not Artaxerxes, uh, Ahasuerus, she had the falling out when she refused to come out when they're all drunk and do the beauty pageant for them, the private beauty pageant. And so she's our first important woman in this book because she said, I've had enough of that stuff. And it cost her her, her throne, if you will, as the queen, but uh, she lived with her dignity and we don't know what happened after that, but that's the way it ended for her. It took four years that went by before Artaxerxes replaced her with Esther, the huge beauty pageant, again, different kind of beauty pageant, lost the battle against the Greeks in the interim period, and then he selected a new queen, and that queen was Esther, and we know that she had, her parents had passed away, her uncle Mordecai the Jew had raised her. We also know that the Jews were very prosperous in the Medo-Persian Empire, they were very solid in commerce, they, they were good for the economy, and that's worth noting because there's a a section tonight where Esther references that it's a good thing for the Jews for the Medo-Persian Empire. So they were good. We have all these tablets that confirm that and uh, show us beyond the Bible that the records show the Jewish people were very good for the economy of the Medo-Persian Empire. So she becomes the queen, but then Haman, who's the number two man in the kingdom, he hates Mordecai, Esther's uncle, because he won't bow down to him. He's the number two guy in all of the world, essentially, He's the vice president of everything, but he just can't handle it because this one person, this Jew, Mordecai, refuses to bow down to him. And so that put him in motion where he set forth the decree to wipe out all the Jews, which he got Artaxerxes to sign off on, whereas Artaxerxes didn't know that his own wife, Esther, was a Jew. So he foolishly signed off on it, and it's going to happen in the future within the calendar year. And so through it all, Mordecai is fasting and making a... a, a spectacle, if you will, with the sackcloth and ashes outside the citadel there. And it turns out that Esther finds out what's going on, and he tells her, look, it's that famous passage 414 of the book of Esther where, es- where Mordecai says to Esther, look, you know, who's not to say God didn't raise you up for such a time as this, but you need to go in before the king and plead for your people. But know this, even if you don't, salvation will arise for the Jews. That's the key verse of the book, Esther 414. But really, right after that, she embraces that responsibility because she wasn't allowed to go into her husband, the king, without permission, without risking her life. And we know that he would put out the scepter if he accepted you, coming in unannounced. If he didn't, that was the end of you. And that's just the way the world can be sometimes. And so she said, just the following verse after 414, She said, I'm going to do it, have everyone fast and pray, and in three days I'll go in. And she said, if I perish, I perish. That testimony of faith that she's all in, 
And she's like, my life is in the hands of the Lord. If I perish, I perish, but we're all in and we're going this way. And that's what we left off two weeks ago. So we pick it up tonight with that background. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friend and his, his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced high how the king had advanced him high above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited to her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Jairus and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallow be made, fifty cubits high. And in the morning suggested the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Man, what a day. I mean, what a day in Shushan, Right? Here you have the beautiful Queen Esther risking her life, if I perish, I perish, going in to save her people, finding favor. Then the number two guy in the kingdom, Haman, with all this power, he has all the power of number two in the world. This is the greatest kingdom, 127 provinces, all the way to India, as far as you can go. He's runner-up. He's got the silver medal. I mean, but you know, for some people, that's just not enough, is it? It's just not enough. Some people just have to be number one, no matter what. And no matter how much you give some people, it, it, because of pride and power, it just, sometimes it's just, some, for some people, it's never enough. There's never enough power. There's never enough possessions. It's just never enough. And it's part of our folly as being born in sin and having the sin nature from Adam and Eve in us as men and women. It's the opposite of contentment. You know, godliness with contentment is great gain. But for the love of money, and we could even say implied in the scriptures, for the love of power, many people have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And it's never enough. And that's the case with Haman. It's really just that one person, I mean all the people that he controls, it's just this one person that he just 
and it's unjustified. See, it's one thing if one person drives you nuts and it's justified, even though it's not with the Lord. But in this case, it's just all wrong. It's pretty crazy uh, how this worked against them. But you picture Esther coming in, in her royal robe, and you think like how we talked about how Artaxerxes, uh, Artaxerxes would have learned from his Arhazurus would have learned from his mistake with Vashti. And he's a different man. I mean, he is a different man. He was led to sign a decree against the Jews while drinking with Haman. So some men just repeat their folly. But at least when it came to his wife and the queen, he's a different man. This is not the man that exiled and banished Vashti. This is the man that when Esther comes in, he, he says he'll give her half the kingdom. If you really think about it, that is amazing. That is an amazing proclamation. In case you think, did he really mean it? He says it twice in this chapter. That's the favor God gave her. I've mentioned the book of Esther. You never hear the name of God in the book of Esther, but you certainly see the works of God and the hand of God in the book. So Esther just says, somehow when she fasted for three days, she just concluded, this is not the night to present the situation to my husband. So she said, tomorrow, tomorrow is, is the night. And so she, she was discerning of that. She puts the king on delay for 24 hours, the most powerful man in the world. But she's in her gear, you know, she's in the queen's outfit and, you know, hey, <laughs> wait till tomorrow night, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this and we'll make clear to you what's going on. And meanwhile, Haman, in his mind, he's so self-absorbed in his universe and in his bitterness and in his pride, he's just, got the, he's just got the read on the situation completely wrong. And these are the moving parts. So think about it. The number one, number one, the number one power man in the world, the number two power man in the world are on hold for Queen Esther, the Jewish woman, the queen, who was raised by her relative. It's a beautiful story, truly, in its own right. So when we look at this text, the thing that jumps out at us before we move on to the next chapter, because it really is a narrative tonight, these three chapters, they just go boom, boom, boom. What really gives our attention, again, we come back to Haman. It says there in verse 9 that he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. God forbid that we would ever let one person or one circumstance fill our hearts with poison and malice and wrath of this level. Now, we, we, we can be tempted for poison and malice and wrath of this level. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw this just a few months ago on Saturday night, where he, he talked about that murder begins in the heart. And when you hate someone, you say, Raka, you fool, and it, it, it just goes forward, that if you don't deal with it and make it right, you're gonna, you are going to come before the judge, and it's going to be a ruling, and it's going to go against you. And Jesus basically said, the longer you let each day go by with bitterness and malice in your heart towards someone, the worse it's going to get. It's going to have a compound effect. So you got to get it early on. You have to recognize it early on, and you need to work through it early on. The bitterness. Because the, the Bible, time and time again, in the New Testament tells us, let no malice be in your heart. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And, and so if you think of the fruit of the Spirit, with love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and um, faithfulness, and, and gentleness, and self-control. That's all the, the things that the Holy Spirit's going to produce in our life. There's just no place for malice and misappropriated anger. 
and bitterness. And I think it's safe to say the longer we live, there's always someone we can picture who's filled with bitterness. And what we learn from watching bitter people is they implode on themselves. They create like a, a black hole of their own demise. And they go in this rabbit hole, if you will, of bitterness and darkness, and it just implodes on them. And I'm quite certain that hell, for a lot of people in the next dimension, it not only is it outer darkness, not only is it separation from God and the kingdom of light and life, which he sent his son to die for, that we can die for us, that we can be there, the restoration of all things, but it is just a, a, a soul, a soul, a human being created in the image of God for the purposes of God and the glory of God who, who refused to accept God because Jesus himself said, men don't come to the light because they love darkness lest their deeds be exposed. So hell is outer darkness individually where there's weeping and torment and no, remor- no reprieve from it. Who can understand such a thing? But believe us here tonight, Jesus taught it clearly and emphatically. But for the person with bitterness and wrath who goes to the grave with bitterness, malice, and wrath in their heart, I, I just got to believe, having observed how it works in time, how much more magnified in eternity, hell is just imploding upon yourself with all that bitterness and all that wrath and the poison and the toxin of who you became because you just you couldn't forgive and you couldn't let go and you're filled with uh, vindictiveness and wrath and you didn't, you didn't give place for the Lord to avenge you and, and take care of it. How many... Seriously, how many billions of human beings have stepped in eternity like that on their last day were found with wrath and bitterness and malice in their heart? So it's a reminder to us how dangerous it is because I think, hey, think how secure you could feel financially if you had this much wealth. Can you imagine how much wealth he actually had? Oh, you have all these properties making money. You're, you're richer than the gold trader, the richest gold trader in Babylon. You're richer than the richest man in Babylon, as the book would say. And you have it all. You can have a, the, the house down by the beach on the Persian Gulf. You can, have the, you can have it all. But because you're so filled with malice and wrath against this one person, because they won't say you're the greatest and bow down to you and treat you like God, you can't enjoy all your wealth. You can't enjoy your wife. You can't enjoy all your kids. It's a scary thing. But I can tell you I've observed it in the human experience. And those of you older, you've observed it too, where people have lost their marriages, lost relationships with their adult children, access to their grandchildren and vice versa or being denied access to their grandchildren because of bitterness and wrath and malice that hasn't been given to and healed by Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So tonight, as we finish 2023 and as we have communion, WG, Body of Christ, and anyone that watches this broadcast, I would say to you, let's not end this year with any bitterness, malice, or wrath in our heart. Even, now his is totally misplaced, even if it seems justified. Because a lot of times it does feel justified. But what separates the greatest people in human history from those that aren't are the ones who could forgive and those who couldn't. I was thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. today, how his nonviolent platform allowed him just to forgive all these people and all the things the FBI did against him, Diego Hoover and all these people. And it, you know he knew he was a sinful man. He forgave, he forgave, he forgave, he forgave. And when he was assassinated there in Memphis in 68, he didn't have bitterness or wrath in his heart. He never responded with violence to violence with violence. But then I was thinking like people who, who maybe they've incurred injustices and they're filled with bitterness and they can't work through it and they're just filled with wrath and they implode on themselves. And in the end, you can't even enjoy Christmas. You can't enjoy the good things. That, all you see is what you don't have and you can't enjoy all the good things that you do have. 
it's a good reminder to us to just, if you see you're there, if you see yourself there, get out of there quickly. Jesus said, do it quickly, make it right quickly. We just, there just can be no place for it. All this avails me nothing so long as this man sits in the king's gate. Wow. All the good things of life he could have enjoyed. But just this one thing became bitterness, malice, and wrath in his heart. And it was unjustified. So it's a reminder tonight, as we end the year, no bitterness. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could wallow in bitterness, malice, and wrath. He died on the cross so we could be forgiven. And he taught us in the Lord's Prayer, the measure you forgive, it'll be forgiven of you. And if you do not forgive, my Father, nor will my Father forgive you in heaven. That's a really strong bonus text on the Lord's Prayer. We pick it up in chapter 6 now. Chapter 6 reads this, That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring to him the book recording of the Chronicles that were read before the king. Now pause for a minute. We know that in these ancient cultures, there's just tablets, Again, there's tens of thousands of tablets from the Babylonian Medo-Persian empires all over the world, under the ground, and in museums. They're all over the place. Almost like Roman coins. You know, like there's millions of Roman coins in collectors have all over the world right now. You can buy, we go down Laguna Beach and buy a bunch of Roman coins from the time of Caesar Augustus. It's amazing. I love stuff like that. Well, so too, there's just tens of thousands of tablets that record for us business dealings, you know, great escapades, whatever, and, and all these sorts of things. So we, we understand that these chronicles and records are a big part of how they... They kept records. They didn't have, you know, a memory stick to put all on. You know, like, they just they wrote on these tablets. And again, there's just tens of thousands of them on the planet right now that we can observe to learn from this time and these cultures. But if you recall, early on in the book, Mordecai had overheard a conspiracy by two eunuchs against the king who served the king. And he reported to Esther, who reported to the king, and it proved to be true, and those traitors were executed. So that's the background here. So the king can't sleep, and he says, I want to read the history. I want to read my history books again. Bring out the memoirs of the last few years. Verse 2, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, the two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or you know, dignity has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, well, nothing's been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king is ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one the king most, uh, one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you've spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And afterward, Mordecai went home to the king's gate. Excuse me. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. He just went right back to doing what he was doing. 
You know, they'd be like, okay, that was random, but you know, that was kind of cool, whatever. You know, it's like being in the Huntington Parade on 4th of July. That was kind of cool. We had a float, and I'd just go back to do what I was doing down there on Main Street. So he just went back to doing uh, what he was doing. So they, they did all that, and he did it, and so he went back to the king's gate. But Haman, verse 12, hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends, everything that happened to him is his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. You know, it, no one gets away with anything. It all comes back around. That's really our, our theme overall tonight, that what you put out, you bring back. In the, you know, in the measure you judge, you'll be judged. In the measure you condemn, you'll be condemned. And certainly this story is one of the greatest examples of that. In fact, again, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, in the measure that you judge, will be judged of you. Judge not lest you be judged. And not like a discernment judgment like we've talked about, but like, no, you're playing the place of God, judge and jury over people's lives. And the older you get, you should get wiser. No, do not do that. Much better for the merciful, the merciful shall find mercy. All right, Sermon on the Mount. So it's much better just show mercy and let God judge his universe because he's got the judgment seat and he knows how to do it perfectly where we think we do sometimes, but it's not for us to do. Or as Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone there in John chapter 7. And nobody picked up stones. They all put them down and went home. Judgment belongs to the Lord and ultimately to the Son of God, Jesus. So Haman, his, his wife, she's the third major woman in this story, right? So we had Vashti who took her stand and got exiled. Then we had Esther that won the beauty contest. If I perish, I perish, risk your life to save her people. And then we have Zeresh, the wife who tells her husband to build the gallows to hang Mordecai on. That, you know that wife? <laughs> Ladies, that wife. The, ah, that wife. Then, when her husband comes home realizing his, the magnitude of his mistake and the consequences of his actions, she's the one that talks down to him. And says, oh, now you're going to fall? If he's Jew, Jewish, you're going to fall before him. It's like, well, you're on my side for building the gallows last night, but today you're, you're throwing me under the bus. We'll come back to her and the consequences of her circumstances as well next week. Something I find amazing in this chapter 6, it's ironic. And I, I've told you, I've been meditating on the book of Esther for over a month now, just going to Florida. I had the gap when I was in Florida, so Esther every day, coming and going, coming and going. Then Christmas break, Esther every day, coming and going, when we're not focused on the Tuesday night message last week. And I, I caught this today. The irony of God's universe and how he set up his universe with perfect laws like gravity for spiritual things. Now listen closely to me on this one. It is ironic that in the condemnation, judgment and condemnation he put on Mordecai is the very condemnation that came upon him. The gallow he built is the gallow he hung on. Most of you know that, and we'll see that soon enough before the night is done. So that's, wow, like, there it is. In the measure you judge, we judge you. He built the gallow for someone else, but he himself hung on that gallow. The Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness, as we're told in the scriptures time and time again. 
The psalmist David said they dig a hole, but they themselves fall in it. But listen, he built the gallow for someone else in his judgment, and he hung in the gallow. But here's what really gets crazy. In his pride, his highest, his highest ideas, ideals, of being self-exalted in the universe, oh, the horse the king rode, I'm riding the king's horse. Think about it. What, what is left for him? If he's riding the king's royal horse and we're in the king's royal robe, what's left for number two? Number one. Like, that's how that works in human history. That's how, you know, a lot of times a backup quarterback, you know, he's, he wants to be the starting quarterback in life. That's how that can work if they're not content. And, of course, we already know he wasn't content. Isn't it ironic? Stay with me. Isn't it ironic? He said, let, let this person wear the royal robe and ride the royal horse and say, be honored at the highest level possible in the greatest kingdom ever in human history. What he spoke for himself for greatness is what God gave his enemy instead. Isn't that incredible? So not only did he bring the judgment against, the judgment he had for his enemy, he brought upon himself. All night long, hearing that hammering away to build that gallow, every drive of the nail was his future in 24 hours. Yet, when he even parade, when he pronounced what the one that the king favors should have, thinking it was for him, he pronounced all this glory and all this power and all this prestige. He was pronouncing the blessing upon his enemy that shouldn't even be his enemy. In other words, his highest ideology for himself in his pride became the very thing that God gave Mordecai. That's incredible. That's just incredible on God's wheels of justice and sowing and reaping and what you put out and what you get back. The very thing in his pride that he wanted, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He did not give it to Haman, but he did give it to Mordecai because when this book ends, Mordecai is in the two spot and quite content to be in the two spot, by the way. He's, he's the great number two guy in the kingdom. He was everything Ahasuerus thought he had with Haman, but he truly was everything he was meant to be for Ahasuerus. Isn't that incredible? Like, it's incredible when you think about it. Mordecai became that person, but Haman thought he was that person. So Haman was a legend in his own mind, but Mordecai really was that person in his sackcloth and ashes outside the front gate. When he delivered the king's life, he didn't, sound as, he didn't post it on social media. You know, it says in the Proverbs, let, it, let the lips of another man praise you. He didn't need to go out there and blow to his own horn. Because that's just who he was. If that's who you are organically, if that's who you are organically, that's just going to be who you are. If you're organically this way with the Lord, and that's how you are day in and day out, then if it's greatness, it's greatness. If it's loss, it's loss. Like Paul said, I've learned to abase and to abound. So when you think about going forward this year and how things work, we know for a fact, in the measure you sow, you will reap. And if you sow for good, and you, if you sow in humility, and you sow in gratitude, and you sow in obedience, and you sow in faith, you are sowing a good seed. And that is exactly what God guarantees through personal faith in his son to bring back on you and even in an impersonal way in how he set up his universe. But for his children, in Jesus' name, we get it, we get it personal. 
I've said this, and it's just so absolutely true. So many world religions and philosophies recognize sowing and reaping because it is a universal truth. It absolutely is. But of course, in many, anything outside of Christ, it's like principles that are impersonal. But we know through faith in Jesus Christ, they're very personal. And God shows them personal. They're in the New Testament. Hey, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. If you, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Exactly what you put out is exactly what you get back. That's how God set it up. So how much more in Christ, as we look toward 2024, are we excited to sow humility, gratitude, obedience, and faith? And what blessings will it bring back to us and to our family? Because we'll get to it. But of course, Haman's sons all get hung in the gallows. So he brought the curse upon himself, and he brought it upon his children. And how about Zaris, who she pronounced to build the gallows? Her own sons were hung on a gallow. What folly for a foolish woman, because the proverb says a foolish woman tears down her home, but a wise woman builds it up. So when you think about 2024, vision and goals, it's like, hey, <laughs> yeah, it's not our first rodeo. 62 years around, you know, on this journey. And we know one thing. Be merciful. Be gracious, sow to the Spirit and reap life. Sow to the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, live the Beatitudes. Be, be, be the Beatitudes. That's why people say Beatitude, be the Beatitudes. That's how we're going to prosper. That's how we're going to be fruitful. We've had immediate relatives of two congregants in the last week and a half step into eternity suddenly, including Donna Lindbergh's brother yesterday. It's just shocking. But to be honest, in my 60s and watching many people in the 60s step into eternity, it's not that shocking. We're all going to step into eternity. Now, you might have a terminal illness and have a chance to grapple with it, but it might just be suddenly. Like my friend Murray's memorial paddle out last week in Oceanside. He just, that was it. He is 67, there he goes. That's how it works. So how much more when we think about eternity, the reality of eternity, to be living with eternity upon our mind and sowing to the Spirit and the good things of the kingdom. You look at Mordecai's faith. Listen, who doesn't know for such a time as this God's put you here, Esther? But know this, even if you don't do it, deliverance will come. See, that's a man of faith. That's a man in the city gate. They prayed around like, he's the most important man on planet earth except the king. He's like, well, that was random. And he goes right back to his spot in the gate. <laughs> and we're like, dude, you were just on the king's horse. Yeah. What was that all about? I don't know. You know, I had a good devotion in Deuteronomy today. I don't know. Like, this is the way the, you know, praise God. Else should I, you know, like, <laughs> that's how it works. You know, ask, well, ask Father Abraham, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's organic. It's who you are. So if you're in the gate mourning with sackcloth and ashes to interceding for your people, or you're being prayed around on the king's royal horse in his royal robe, it's just who you are. So be that person in 2024. Be that person. It's the, it's the character that matters more than the awards, because real character is real character. When I think about 2024, my personal goals, when I think about five years from now, now 2029 instead of 2028, when I think about being 80 in 2041, and who I want to be. All my goals are based upon, number one, personal faith, growth, and character, and integrity. Then comes family. Then comes the financial stewardship. Then comes pastoring. Then comes making the world a better place. Faith, family, finance is fruit. 
Because if you can't manage your wealth, then you're, you're not really producing good fruit. You're a burden on someone else somewhere, somehow. So you want those stewardship principles. That's why Jesus taught so much on it. Not that we worship it, that it controls us, but, you know, a good steward is a good steward. And stewardship is always revealed in finances and the ability to manage them. If the Lord has, what do you say? To him who has, more will be given. It's just, it's faithfulness and growing and learning. None of us ever arrives on these things, but we want to keep growing. Faith, family, finances, fruit. Fruit is people. Pastoring, evangelizing, the kingdom, people. There you go. It's, it's a four square. It's pretty easy. But it's character. Mordecai had character. Sackcloth and ashes, chapter four. Esther's like, put some clothes on. Then he's wearing the king's robe in chapter six. It's who we are in Jesus' name by the power of his spirit. Now we read on chapter seven. So Haman's like, oh man, he's, he's just, oh, he's, but he brought on himself. The day of reckoning's come for Haman. Chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther on the second day at the banquet uh, of wine. And the king again said to Esther, what is your petition in Queen Esther, it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? After half the kingdom, it shall be done. It's the third time of that promise made to her. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, uh, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. That's what I was talking about earlier. The Jews were good business people for the economy of Persia. It was not in the best interest to sell them into slavery. They're the ones that produced a good economy. Verse 5. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. And when the king returned from, from the palace garden to the palace of, of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look! The gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So as we mentioned in chapter 6, that it all, Haman, he built the gallows in condemnation upon himself and he proclaimed in his pride all the things the king should do for him, but in fact, it was done for his enemy. And I draw your attention in chapter 7 to this phrase in verse 2, on the second day. You know, God's timing is always right on time. And again, this is a good application for the last message of the year as we think about 2024 and wrapping up 2023. God's timing is always right on time. If you recall there in the Gospel of John when Mary and Martha, when Lazarus had died and they sent for Jesus and he waited and he came a few days later and the accusation went forth right away from Martha, Lord, if you'd only been here yesterday, you could have saved our brother. The implication being that if you'd been on time, this wouldn't have happened. See, they had faith to believe that Jesus could heal their brother, but they didn't understand and have faith that Jesus could raise their brother from the grave. 
has a whole nother level of faith, and they're about to learn it. In fact, that phrase that I share so often at Christian memorials, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though they die, shall live forevermore. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, Lord, I do. So his delay gave opportunity to respond to being accused of being late, to proclaim he's the resurrection life, which is a claim no other world leader ever made, a religious leader, which is really important for us. I mean, that, that phrase is so powerful. Whenever something comes up that seems impossible, I'm like, hey, you know, don't, don't even worry about it. You know, like, especially like legal stuff or government stuff, like you're just going through loopholes and stuff. Like, listen, we're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave. He's bigger than government. He can figure this form out. And if you forget everything, he's bigger than you not remembering anything. He's going to raise us. We are trusting in Jesus to raise us from the grave because he's the resurrection and the life. That's the comfort. You know, when I go, when I go to minister to someone on their, in their final moments, I can quote that passage because I believe it and I can declare it, and it's true. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus, and I can tell you many times I quote that, and I quote that to family members, some of you even I've quoted to you, at your loved one's memorials, right? I said that, and we believe it. Jesus was right on time. He wasn't late. And then he called forth Lazarus from the grave, and he became exhibit A that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, in this story, it would seem like everything's a panic. They're on the clock because there's a day of doom hanging over the Jewish people. There's a day of doom that Haman deceived Arsuris to sanction. The Persian law cannot be revoked. Not even he can revoke it. It's like a Supreme Court decision. It, has to, it just can't be revoked. You can make another thing that could replace it, but you can't revoke it. It just can't happen. It's not going to happen. It's very powerful. So they're a people group on the clock knowing that they're going to be wiped out ethnically. It's going to be an ethnic cleansing, which human history shows happens a lot, actually. It's not that surprising. So it's an ethnic cleansing against them, which, by the way, are the most prosperous people in the Medo-Persian Empire, which Esther said would not be good for the king, which she implied in this chapter we just read. You would be tempted to be so panicked but, you know, that's when you got to really slow things down. And like it says in Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall not grow weary, but they shall, they shall run and not grow weary, and they shall mount up with wings of, like an eagle. Now, there's a time for action, no question about it, and there's a time where we need to move quickly, but never in a hurry, per se, but quickly. John Wooden, the great basketball coach at UCLA, used to say, quickly, but not in a hurry. And if you can understand the distinction, if you think about it, Quickly, but not in a hurry. Quickly means efficiently, with urgency. But in a hurry means you're scrambled like a chicken with your head cut off. That's the difference. Quickly, but not in a hurry. It doesn't get sloppy. But here in this situation, where everyone can just be like, oh my goodness, they're all over the kingdom. All the, you know, we're talking about maybe six, seven, eight time zones of Jewish people impending doom. Even those in Jerusalem impending doom, because that's where the kingdom extended as well. Impending doom on everybody. Everyone that's a Jew. But Esther said three days to her uncle, Mordecai, three days. We need three days. Three days to stop the clock, slow it down, slow the game down. The game's moving fast right now. The game of life, our ethnicity, our people, the Messiah, the scriptures, it's all coming down to this. She said, hey, hang on now. 
Because life is like a baseball game. It's not over to the last out. It's not over to the last out. We all know in baseball that last out can be the hardest out because it's not over to the last out. And the Lord always comes through. It might be <laughs> the last out, but he's coming through because all the promises are yes and amen, and he promises to come through. So we have to learn to not be anxious, but to know that God's going to come through. And Esther said three days for fasting and prayer. Then she had the banquet, and she was certain enough to know this is not the night to tell my husband what the deal is. This, you know, when you kind of, they say read the room, they say in speaking, read your audience. The audience is speaking, even when you're quiet. You're speaking right now. You're speaking to me. I'm speaking to you. You're speaking to me. And you, you, you read the room. I'm not sure if Esther had premeditated be the second night, because she hadn't been with her husband for 30 days or whatever it might be, but she knew somehow, she knew, not tonight, you know, today's not the day to say this. This is not the right moment. And even though it seems like it's in a hurry for you, uh, just slow it down. So that night, had she told him the night before, well, what would have happened? Well, she would have been a day early. Because it's the next night when her husband's sleeping that he can't sleep, and he brings out the books that affirms Mordecai as the guy that saved his life from the coup that was against them. Suddenly now, just by waiting on the Lord and being sensitive enough to wait on the Lord, Mordecai is now exalted. The turn of events happens the next day this way, and it all goes the way it's supposed to in the next 36 hours. That's the first night with her husband to the next night and the following day of the gallows, about 36 hours, a day and a half. So it reminds us as we think about the future, God holds the future, and it just reminds us that he's always right on time, that he's sovereignly over things, and it's good to just discern those things. Not to panic. Like, it really is, you know, like, whether you're like, just making a, a big financial decision or, or anything like to, you know, it's okay if you don't have the peace. Just pause. Selah, as it says in the Psalms. And, and, and Esther read this situation perfectly. She didn't present the situation on the first night. She waited. Her husband, the Lord, makes him restless all night. He brings out the tablets. He's like, oh, this happened. How I never set this right. Then the whole story flips the next day. Uh, Haman goes favorable to Mordecai. Haman's demise is known. And now the second night, it's made clear when they're all there. And then Haman's hung with perfect justice the next day. God's timing is the perfect timing. So as we go through life, we realize, you know, we want to recognize the cadence of the Spirit of God in our personal life. So there's a cadence. And you know, like, that's what I like about dancing, because some songs will be this cadence, and it drops, and there's a drop, and it slows down, you got kind of like, oh, there's a cadence, you know? That's what I like about doing the DJ board, because you have BPMs, beats per minute. 128 or standard beats per minute. Your Earth, Wind, and Fire songs, a lot of your current dance songs, BPM 128 is your standard. But I can tell right away when I hear a song, that's not 128, the BPMs are higher, the beats per minute. Or, like, uh, reggae music, way lower. It's about 80, you know, because da, 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 right? So the BPMs come way down. That's how it works with the Spirit in our life sometimes. It might seem most of the time our BPM is like a 128. It's an easy mix. The song to that song, fade in, fade out. But if you're going from 128 to 142, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a higher thing, and you, 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 you want to recognize it. 
What I'm saying is life has different cadences with the Lord. Sometimes like, hey, slow it down. Sometimes like, get moving. Sometimes you're Elijah sitting in the brook Cherith and the birds bring you everything. And suddenly there's no water, there's no birds. You're like, hey, let's get going. So it's just a reminder at the end of this year, grow in the ability to read the cadence of the Lord in your life. You get that? Because God's sovereign. He's over it. So he wants us to just know his frequency, know his cadence, and be able to adjust. Like, wedding song number five is like this way. Wedding song number six is like this way. You know, like, know the cadence and flow and trust that God's got it. He's going to raise you from the grave on the day of the Lord. Yes, and amen.